Hello, Next Picture Show listeners. Here's a friendly reminder that if you enjoy The Next Picture Show, you'll really enjoy getting more Next Picture Show by subscribing to our Patreon. You can get our weekly newsletter for $3 a month and unlock bonus episodes for $5 a month. You also get access to ad-free versions of the podcast. We recently released bonus episodes on Mayor of Easttown and The Mitchells vs. The Machines. And we have another one in the works about the Scott Tobias-created Shrektoversy that recently roiled the internet. To subscribe to our Patreon, please visit patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Difficult to keep the line between the past and the present. Do you believe that someone out of the past can enter and take possession of a living being? We may be through with the past, but the past is not through with us. Welcome to The Next Picture Show, a movie of the week podcast devoted to a classic film and how it shaped our thoughts on a recent release. I'm Keith Phipps, here with... Tasha Robinson. And Scott Tobias. Our co-host, Genevieve Kosky, is currently recovering from a broken leg while watching her neighbors through a telescope, but we have a special guest joining us in her stead. Roxana Haddadi is a freelance pop culture critic whose work has appeared in Vulture, The AV Club, Polygon, and elsewhere. Hello, Roxana. Hey, everybody. Thanks for having me on. We keep inching and inching toward covering a film you might actually have to go to a movie theater to see, but we're not there yet. It's still quarantinement time here at The Next Picture Show, pairing films you can find on VOD, cable television, or streaming services. This week, we're even dealing with films focused on people who can't leave their homes for one reason or another. Now, wait just a minute here. Yes? They can't leave their homes? Well, can't or won't. It's a little ambiguous in the second movie because the character is struggling with mental health issues. It might be uncharitable to say she's choosing to stay inside when she has agoraphobia. Ah, I see. Uh, In this other movie, what's the problem there? The protagonist has a broken leg. Scott, we're going to spend the next several hours discussing these movies. Did you watch either of them? Uh, Sure, I watched them. They they both had window in the title. And uh, you know what? I I don't have the time for this stuff. I didn't watch them. Scott, what happened? This is not like you. Well, see, there's this fellow across the way who's been doing some funny stuff. What kind of funny stuff? Uh, Well, you know, funny, just peculiar. So? Uh, Well, I had to keep an eye on him, see what he was up to. You didn't have to keep an eye on him. Sure I did. See, the other night... Wait, wait. did did you hear that? Hear what? That noise. I think someone's in the house. If this is your way of getting out of actually watching these movies and talking about them with us... Uh, Scott? Scott? Okay. Well, looks like we're going to have to press on without another one of our co-hosts. Tasha, can you tell us about this week's pairing? I'm a little surprised that we're just moving on past Scott's horrible demise instead of trying to solve it, maybe by spying on his neighbors. But well, we we do have a guest here. We should we should respect her time and move along. In Joe Wright's latest film, The Woman in the Window, Amy Adams plays a New York therapist who has issues of her own, including agoraphobia and a mounting problem with alcohol and prescription drugs. So when she seems to witness the murder of her neighbor, the police who respond to her call aren't immediately inclined to believe her especially when a woman claiming to be the murdered woman shows up to dispute the claim. An adaptation of a best-selling novel, The Woman in the Window inevitably got us thinking about one of its obvious sources of inspiration, Alfred Hitchcock's Rear Window, in which Jimmy Stewart plays a photographer recovering from a broken leg who takes to watching his neighbors across the courtyard for amusement, then sees something that leads him to believe his neighbor is a murderer. So in this episode, we'll take a long, intense look at Rear Window, and in the next, we'll turn to The Woman in the Window one of the many films Hitchcock's original has inspired. Please join us. This is the scene of the crime. A crime of passion, filmed in a way you have never seen before. And as no one else would dare attempt, but the screen's master of suspense, the producer-director who shocked the world with Psycho. This is the apartment of a man named Jeffries, a news photographer whose beat used to be the world. Right now, his world has shrunk down to the size of this window. He's been watching the people across the way. Nobody seems to pull their blinds during a hot spell like this. He knows a lot about them by now. Too much, perhaps. As Rear Window opens, LB Jeff Jeffries, played by Jimmy Stewart, is already deep in the habit of staring at the neighbors who share his New York apartment building. There's a heat wave on and seemingly no other entertainment to occupy his time. And besides, why shouldn't he look? There's a bohemian artist and a middle-aged couple who sleep on the fire escape and a grumpy salesman with a colorful flower bed and an extremely fit ballerina. And is there any harm in looking? His habit is well known to, if not approved by Lisa Fremont, played by Grace Kelly, 
the high society model who makes no attempt to hide her desire to settle down with him, just as Jeff makes no attempt to hide his reluctance to settle down. Both his peeping Tom tendencies and his romantic reluctance are known, too, to Stella, played by Thelma Ritter, the insurance company nurse who chides Jeff for staring into the window of a pair of newlyweds with the words window shopper. That's a phrase that's worth turning over once or twice while thinking about rear window, since its implications stretch beyond those newlyweds' walls. Jeff's voyeurism allows him to sample the lives of others from a distance and maybe consider what it's like to lead those lives. His interest in a pair of sunbathers seems to be purely prurient, but the beautiful Miss Torso stirs an interest in her love life and her well-being, and why she can't seem to make a choice from her many suitors. And Jeff seems generally concerned with the fate of the lonely lady he calls Miss Lonely Hearts. Even seeming to witness a murder doesn't fully pull him away from all those other stories unfolding around him. As others have pointed out before, Rear Window is in many ways a movie about the act of watching movies. Jeff's neighbors even seem to be playing out popular film genres, from the melodrama to the romantic comedy. Here's how Roger Ebert put it in a reconsideration of the film written in 2000. Here's a film about a man who does on the screen what we do in the audience, look through a lens at the private lives of strangers. And maybe there's no such thing as a safe distance when you're looking at private lives of strangers, for Jeff or for us. As the mystery unfolds and Jeff draws both Lisa and Stella into his obsession, he can only watch as the danger mounts around them. He can do no more to change their fate than we can to change his. All he can do is watch and be moved, maybe scarred by what he sees. Of course, he didn't have to start watching. Jeff's reluctance to commit to Lisa pushes the plot along nearly as much as the murder they're trying to solve. He's firm in his commitment to remaining uncommitted, but why? Lisa's clearly better than he deserves, but she loves him anyway. She's also present in a way those neighbors across the way aren't, demanding his attention when maybe all he wants to do is watch and drift away on thoughts of others' lives. Here's a quote from the director Curtis Hansen, as featured in a making-of documentary found on the film's DVD and Blu-ray. To some degree, to avoid looking at his own problem, he focuses on what's going on out there. And we all become voyeurs. And maybe we already are. Maybe movies make window shoppers of us all. So everyone, we'll start with the usual way we start this conversation. What's everyone's history with Rear Window? Roxana? Yes. I don't remember when I saw it, but my parents really love movies and we grew up watching a lot of movies. They are really into Hitchcock and a lot of these classics with Jimmy Stewart Mm. and Cary Grant and, you know, handsome old white men. So I think I must have been like nine or ten. And what really stood out to me, uh, because I wasn't really into cinema yet, but I was really into journalism. We watched 60 Minutes every Sunday. And so I really loved this idea of you can sort of hop around in other people's lives. And so I think that was something that really stood out for me, not thinking about it in terms of film, but just in terms of like what journalism and storytelling do. And I just really loved that. Yeah, I think my experience was maybe a little similar. I'm pretty sure that I first encountered this movie in college, which is a common refrain for me because, you know, I didn't I didn't grow up with a whole lot of movies. We went to the revival theater to see animated things, very occasionally went to the theater to see new releases, and then kind of fell into the VHS uh, rental revolution when that happened. But that mostly had me watching movies with my family, you know, it, 80s comedies and whatnot. So... When I got to college, I suddenly started understanding that there was a history of cinema that I was missing out on and filling in the blanks. And I think Rear Window for me was just, you know, one of a whole lot of of classics that I picked up during a period of just like cramming down as many classics as I could get to. And it, it baffled me a little, I think, because I was watching a bunch of Hitchcock at the time. And a lot of the things that he kind of establishes as his principles uh, are are not present in Rear Window. One of his big calling cards he discussed a lot is you show the audience something that the characters don't see, or you show the audience something that one character sees and, and nobody else gets to see. And 
given how long it's been since I've seen Rear Window and how many different iterations and interpretations and redos of it, I really remembered Jeff seeing more than he actually does. And this being one of those, you know, trying to convince people he isn't crazy kind of movies, as opposed to what it actually is, which is a a man with a surprising amount of support team and, and people who believe him just trying to put together a case. It's much more a stationary gumshoe and journalism story and to some degree a voyeur story than it is a is this person crazy movie so revisiting it now after seeing so many related films when the first time I encountered it and maybe the last time I encountered it was it was a new kind of thing to me Uh, it was just a really interesting experience I would have encountered this film as a teenager, I'm sure. I don't remember the first time I saw it, but I would have seen it with a bunch of other Hitchcocks because I used to do that kind of go on runs with a filmmaker and Hitchcock being Hitchcock, uh, it would have been an early one. But Rear Window is something that, of course, came up to me most vividly in film class because it is kind of the ultimate film class movie because it is about cinema. It reflects both our compulsion to watch movies and also reflects how movies operate it's about off-screen space it's about persistence of vision it's about you know information that we have and information that we don't have you know and of course obviously each scene each window is is another screen into a different drama and uh and so it, it functions so fruitfully you know as a giant metaphor for cinema that you just can't help but to <laughs> unpack it. I think this is a great movie to unpack with a class and uh, maybe with the four of us. And then of course seeing it again it's it's wonderful. It's it's very um it's a very accessible classic among Hitchcock films. I mean you you think about like the movies that get cited as his best works. I mean things films like Vertigo and Psycho. Those are strange films. This is pretty graspable. It's structurally not funky like Psycho is. It's not as abstract as Vertigo and it's full of very you know, audience pleasing tension and drama, while also, I think, having all the complexity, you know, and style and, and beauty of a great Hitchcock film. So uh, I, I really love it. Uh, I've always loved it. And uh, I was extremely excited to uh, watch it for the show this week. Keith? I saw this probably, like Roxanne, I saw it when I was young, in part because this will date me, but at some point in the 80s, there was a whole like swath of Hitchcock films that had been like semi out of circulation for a while that were re-released in theaters. And this was one of them. And it was like this, it was rear window vertigo, you know, I think trouble with Harry, which I didn't see till years later, uh, man who knew too much. I, I didn't go to the theater to see them. I don't think I, I don't know if it played Dayton, Ohio, but when it came out to video stores or television, that's when I watched them. And like this, I must've seen on television because I, there's like a very small swath of people that have this memory. If, if I didn't look up on Wikipedia, I'd almost feel like it is a, a Mandela effect kind of thing. But to pad out the running time, the studio put in a three minute dream sequence. They just created for this film. Uh, for the TV airings of this film with this re-release that's basically just recycling footage from earlier in the film. Like Jeff is laying there dreaming about things that we've already seen. And I I do remember it being really dull. (laughs) So, uh, Whereas the rest of the film, of course, naturally, I found uh, very exciting. It's a film I've seen uh, many times over the years. Um, I had a chance to see it in the theater about 20 years ago, right before I moved to Chicago. I saw it in the music box, which was a great experience. And it was a pleasure to revisit it here as well. I had forgotten to speak to what you were talking about, Tasha, about characters not knowing something. I'd forgotten that little little bit where you see Thorwald leaving with a woman and you think maybe, you know, I think you're supposed to think maybe Jeff doesn't know what he's talking about. So there's a that little bit of suspicion that he might. Which yeah, the I, detect- I, detective puts all kinds of, you know, sure, doubt into the... Like, this is evidence that we see, you know, mm-hmm. which makes it kind of interesting, which I'd, I'd forgotten that detail. So another brilliant detail uh, that, <laughs> that uh, I just happened to overlook uh, before. I'd also had forgotten how horny this movie is. It's, it's quite a sexually aware film uh, in many ways. Yeah. Yeah. It's kind of like almost G-rated and yet sexual. I mean, the amount Mm of leering over bodies and smirking over, oh, those two are having a lot of sex is pretty pervasive, but it's also very, it's innocent in a way. There's actually that moment where Doyle, the detective, sees Miss Torso, the scantily clad and, and frequently stripping ballet dancer, and he smirks. 
And even though Jeff has been like kind of mildly smirking at her in reaction shots over and over throughout the movie, there's kind of a greasy feeling when Doyle does it. There's just kind of a moment of, hey, that's not for you. You're taking it in a kind of a gross way. Like he's taking it in kind of an innocent way. And I find myself trying to track down where that impulse came from. Like, is it just because we like Jeff more or is it like a nuance of the expression? But mostly there's a feeling of like kind of gleeful innocence about the sexuality in this film and how much of what we see. And then there's just that one moment that's like, you stop. I don't think I realized as a kid just how creepy Jeff's behavior was. I mean, he's, he's plays by James Stewart, so we love him. You know, he's a nice guy, but also like you don't do that. You don't just stare at your neighbor's windows. That's not that's not normal. Uh, that's not normal behavior. Oh, uh-oh. <laughs> oh, no. Wait, what? <laughs> Have I caught you in a trap? Yeah, that kind of no, caught me as I well. Don't, I don't necessarily... I, I do agree that the level of his investment is unsettling. <laughs> <laughs> but I, there is part of me that while watching it, like living in a suburb where I feel like very separate from my neighbors, there was mm-hmm. something about the like communal energy that he is tapping into that I did like like there i think in terms of the storytelling it feels like there's so much overlap between these people's lives and there's so much investment like he is very much being a creep but i think that everybody is a little bit aware of what everybody else is doing and i sort Mm -hmm. of like how much time we spend with each apartment and the camera roaming and it feels very intentional it feels like it doesn't take very long for all of us to have an idea of what everybody is up to which is why then the murder doesn't really come as a surprise necessarily, but it's like, oh, wait, there's this is a shift in what we're accustomed to seeing. Um, so I maybe I hopefully would not spend that much time looking into people's windows. <laughs> but there was part of me that was like, I sort of understand the impulse to do this, especially as a photographer, somebody who is always looking for that next story. And I think that's, for me, why his looking at Miss Torso doesn't feel super sexual. I feel like it's an appreciation of what she's doing rather than a covering. But that might just be because I love Jimmy Stewart. (laughs) There's nothing about it that feels like predatory or leering or lurid. Maybe it's just a sense that... You know, there's there's no chance that he's he's masturbating over her. There's no chance that he's plotting anything around her. It would take so little for him to pick up that camera and point it at her and for it to immediately become stalking in a creepy kind of way. But I don't think it even occurs to him. Uh, and that's that's kind of an important part of the dynamic. Tasha's ju- jumping right ahead to the, the Van Sant psycho here. <laughs> the restoration I, was, references. I was actually thinking a little more of, oh, crap. Body double. Yes, thank you. Uh, bedroom window, every any any one of the things were just completely. Yeah, I got, the, I got hung up on the, Blue Velvet for a second there. These these two oh word well, the, these two is, word movie names about voyeurism uh, that are all kind of lurid and creepy. They they all fall together. But yes, I was specifically thinking about Body Double and the the particular flavor of the voyeurism there and how how much greasier it feels. You know, Blue Velvet has this film all over it. I mean, I, that was certainly one of the films that kind of came to mind when I was watching, particularly. Once uh, Jeff and, and Lisa partner up and the excitement and, and almost sort of erotic tension that comes from that adventure, uh, which is so much like uh, Kyle MacLachlan and uh, Laura Dern and that and uh, the, the Lynch film. But, you know, one thing that I'll say that I think Hitchcock does right away, and this is, again, a, a comment, I think, on cinema, is that when we as an audience first encounter Grace Kelly in the film, it is a pretty electrifying, intense moment. It is erotic, I will say. It is very intense. But for Jeff, of course, it's boring. I mean, she's boring to him. But if we were to take Rear Window as a metaphor for the cinema, once she crosses over onto a screen herself, once she becomes part of the movie, once he is watching her entering a narrative across the courtyard, that completely changes his perspective on her and his excitement about her i mean that to me that's kind of you know and i think to me that's kind of hitchcock's ultimate sort of commentary on the movies and about the voyeuristic charge of watching them and i think that evolution in terms of lisa's involvement in the case makes her less boring to him and more exciting because she is now you know part of this kind of voyeuristic world that he's uh gotten into 
Yeah, I don't buy that. Uh, I think there are a lot. I, I think <laughs> okay. I think that might be a, a small I don't, I don't, thread. I don't, I don't want to dismiss Scott. No, <laughs> wow. I, no. Well, I'm sorry. Are you not used to me dismissing Scott and telling him he's wrong? Like, do we do we need to review our entire history up until now? Uh, it's a fairly standard issue, kind of like inside in the rear window. But uh... well, uh, but I don't I don't agree that she that he thinks she's boring. I don't agree that that's what his issue with her is. I think he's got some inadequacy issues going on. I don't think that they're they live similar lives. I'd wanted to kind of circle back to what Roxana was saying about the the journalism aspect of all of this. I think that he's bored in general. I think that that pan of photos at the beginning that are all like explosions and car wrecks show us what he's used to his life being. And he wants a much more engaged and dangerous life. But his response to her I think if he was bored with her, he'd get rid of her. And instead, he keeps talking about how, you know, she just lives a much fancier life than he can ever aspire to, that he's just not built for that world. I think that there is a degree to which, like, he does spell out that she's not built for the kind of world that he lives in. And I think that that aspect of it is true. But I don't think it's boredom with her. I think he just understands that she can't follow him where he's going, but also he can't follow her where she's going. And it leaves them in, in two different places. When you when you talk about him being bored with her, it makes him sound very shallow and judgmental in a way I, I don't think it's meant to be. And I agree that he sees her differently after she she crosses over into the world that he's peeping at. It's complicated. I do agree that he sees her differently when she's entered his world because he specifically says she's not fit for this kind of danger. And then she is, she proves that she is. But I think there's another level on top of that. That's just, he put her in that danger. He nearly gets her killed and it's because he's helpless and he, he knows he's helpless. He can't intervene. He doesn't make any attempt to, I don't know, lean out the window and shout and try to get the guy's attention or threaten him. He cringes in the dark when she's in trouble. And that, to me, is really telling about who he is. He loves the excitement and thrill, but he's apparently not geared enough for it to even try to defend his lady love when she's doing the dangerous thing on his behalf. I just I think that what you're describing is a thread through it, but I think there are a whole lot of other threads. And one of the things fascinating about this movie is how they all compete and speak to each other. Uh, the first part of your, your uh, that explanation is pretty much what's offered in the film is that he doesn't want to settle down. He's, he's afraid of being, being bored and she can't go to his world. And they talk about that so much. It almost feels like it's not enough of an explanation. I mean, to me, maybe just because I See this in the context of other Stewart and Hitchcock films, and 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 just Stewart in general in the fifties. Like he, he came back from World War II traumatized by his experience, and like there's there's kind of a damaged element to his performances and the characters he takes on after that 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 wasn't there before. I mean, Vertigo being one key example, but all the you know Anthony Mann westerns and other films he made at the time, he was much more. He, you know the, the happy-go-lucky steward of, of before was you can still play that but there was always kind of a cracked element to it too now maybe i'm just reading too much into this film knowing that but i mean i he, there are references to jeff's own war experience like kind of oblique references when he talks to his detective friend that um you know or just kind of hit at some some really dark experiences and i, I don't know uh, to me I, I just i wonder if there's more there although i've been hard pressed to actually you know declare what the other thing there would be um so i don't know it's, it's a fascinating part of this film I think that he's someone who wants to think that he's willing to dive back into the action again, but I think fundamentally he is a bystander and he feels like mm. a bystander even in the relationship. Like, I feel like there's so him being like, no, no, I can't hang out with your society friends or talk about Italian fabrics or eat caviar. Like, I feel like a lot of that is sort of a fear of becoming involved, yes, in a world that he doesn't feel fit for or whatever. But I also think it's about like being afraid of really being told you don't belong here. And I think so much of that seems to fit into him documenting other people's lives rather than living his own. And I think the insurance company nurse, which I love that you could have an insurance company nurse as a photojournalist <laughs> back in the day, it, like she tells him from the beginning, like, why aren't you just like living your life? And so I think so much of this also is just a commentary on like 
and you know, I I have a bachelor's degree in journalism. My partner was a photojournalist, so some of this feels very familiar. But that sense of like, well, other people's lives are more interesting than my own, so why would I waste time on myself? And it feels like that's how Stuart's character feels. Like he's wasting time on himself and being in a real relationship with her would be a waste of time. I think that's very insightful. I am very curious how uh, the rest of you read that moment when Thorwald is turns out the lights and and starts strangling her and all Jeff can do is cringe in the dark. Like I how do you mm-hmm. guys read that in terms of what it says about him or what he's experiencing in that moment? It's tough to read. I mean, it is this whole movie is is so much about him not doing what you want him to do. Like, you know, he gives him every reason in the world if you are watching and and have your head screwed on the straight to want to settle down and, and have this nice life with a beautiful uh, woman who cares for you deeply, but he can't. And like there, he, he wanted to scream out or something and, and he and he won't. And, and it's, I don't, there's a lot of mystery in that. I think there's a lot for all like sort of the ease of use that you pointed out, Scott. There's many elements in this movie that, that it does not explain itself adequately about. Isn't that just simply read as it might for any one of us if a person, if we were laid up and a person that we cared about was in danger? I mean, I just think that's the moment of simple helplessness of where he's, you know, can't do anything about it, do anything about what's happened to her, probably feels extremely guilty about having involved her in this and maybe and maybe starts to recognize the degree to which he cares about her as well. You know, I mean, you certainly do that when when a person that you care about is in some kind of trouble or, 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 or pain or something that summons some very true feelings you might have about that person. So um, um, I, to me, that that is expressed pretty well in that moment. And I don't find it that unreadable, but maybe there's some other level on which I'm not kind of getting it. I mean, to me, I think it just goes back to that question of like, when the time comes, can he dive into something? And I don't know if he can. I don't know if the idea of that sort of like take charge hero is who this character is. And I think that's maybe the clearest indication of that because everything up until this point, I feel like is like, I've seen something. Let me see if I can prove it. Can I convince other people? Everything is very, I don't want to say murky, But a little bit, you know, the movie's not trying to trick us, but I think he's having somewhat of a hard time getting there. But then when something feels very definitive and obvious and he's unable and potentially unwilling to do something about it, I do think it makes us wonder if he didn't have allies on his side in the first place. If he didn't have these women helping him in the first place, would he have even done anything at all? And I don't know. It complicates him for me. It makes me hate him a little bit. But speaking for myself, like I have been in a situation where I thought I would act one way and I was in a little bit of danger and I didn't really act in the way that I anticipated. So it feels very recognizable, but also something that makes me very uncomfortable to watch in terms of what a hero, quote unquote, would do. Yeah, I I think he's a really interesting character for that reason. I mean, by definition, he's a character who can't run in and do it himself and and has to. And, you know, even there's even more shame back in that era of the idea of him not being able to do any of it for himself and relying on women to carry his water for him. But I just it feels so telling to me, like the lady whose dog is strangled rouses the whole neighborhood screaming at all of them at blaming them for their lack of engagement, for their lack of caring, for their lack of response, and calling them all to account. But in the moment where he where he's literally watching somebody try to murder the woman he loves, he can't bring himself to do something similar. You know, he doesn't shout. He doesn't call the neighborhood to attention. He doesn't call the, the people on his side of the building, like, look in that window, see what's going on. He just sits there in the dark and whispers her name in terror. I think it's really telling, but I also think it's just a really interesting storytelling choice. Do you think it's a sign of him seeing it as a movie and not thinking that he can make a difference in what's playing out? Or do you think it's just a moment of very telling cowardice. Uh, cowardice is a really judgmental word to use it in is. this place. I did I did sort of throw that in there. Yeah. Uh, 
cowardice, I guess, isn't necessarily the word that comes to mind, but maybe insufficiency or impotence, just like an inability to rise to the occasion. I don't know that I think he thinks it's a movie, but you know, he is so used to uh, as a photographer operating from the other side of a lens. And I think it's really telling that he apparently got his his leg and or hip shattered because he was standing, apparently standing in the middle of a racetrack during a car wreck as if he thought he was immortal, as if he thought that the cars couldn't touch him because he wasn't part of the race. He was just taking pictures of it. And I, I kind of feel like that's a theme throughout is he thinks of himself as separate from what's going on. It's all a sort of play playing out. Maybe the most charitable way to describe his response is he's realizing it isn't just a movie and he doesn't know what to do about that in the moment. Yeah, movie is the movie, movie, movie is what I was wanting to shout there during that whole thing. Yeah, I mean, to to I mean, this is a person by occupation and and now by this situation uh, who experiences life from the remove of uh, a camera, and that puts him in the position of a voyeur uh, who is who is not involved in in action, but is is filming it, is watching it, is uh, you know not active. Um, and and so I think that's uh, uh, and maybe that and that's what he's doing when he's on 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 the road in various uh, uh, trouble trouble troublesome spots, and and it's what he's doing there. And I think there is this theme that you see in a lot of movies, and I guess maybe maybe here is where. It starts of when people have a camera in their hands, they feel removed from the reality in which they're in, that, that, that everything becomes a movie. I mean, it's kind of it's why nobody ever drops the camera in the Blair Witch Project or something, right? Because if, they, if, if they're filming everything with that camera, then this terrible threat that is happening to them is, is just a movie. It's not, it's not real. And uh, and I think that's the world he's used to seeing is is one that's that's mediated by the camera that's mediated by his voyeurism, and that is only towards the end of the film, you know, sort of penetrated by actual reality and, ac- and an actual threat, and, and actually seeing uh, people for who, who they who they are in a very tangible and, and dangerous and kind of exciting way. And, like, forgive me if this is obvious, but just the idea of, like, objectivity versus subjectivity. Like, as a journalist, as a photojournalist or whatever, you're supposed to be objective, distant, not necessarily judging what's happening so much as just documenting it. Whereas, from the very beginning, him even thinking, like, there's a crime. This guy seems shady. I should watch what he's doing. That in and of (laughs) itself seems like an initial breach of his responsibility and his training. So to carry that through and to then have that moment where he should abandon objectivity and jump in and do something and being unable to do that does feel like a combination of whatever trauma and training that has put him in this place. So to be honest, it's something that sort of fascinates me about our modern obsession with our phone cameras and the degree to which if something something violent or untoward happens in public, people immediately pull out their cameras and start filming it, but they rarely speak up or get involved. You know, yeah. for every, here's a bad customer having a physical tussle with the Bed Bath & Beyond staff you get out there. Very few of those videos feature the people behind the cameras speaking up in any way, you know, whether to call somebody on their bad behavior or threaten the police. They stand back and record it, for posterity or to go viral or for whatever reason, maybe just a show to friends later. But I think there's that impulse that's just like, first of all, I'm not part of this situation. I'm just recording it. And second of all, I don't have to get involved because I'm recording it. And I just, I wonder how extensive, how far back that impulse goes, how much it's uh, kind of baked into us from the culture as, you know, the person who's recording it is safe from it. The person who's recording it isn't part of it or involved in it. And how surprising these people who whip out their phones at the first sign of controversy get when the person that's being taped like turns on them and, and speaks to them or threatens them. Yeah. I mean, I think it's one of those things where it's like, you think, from that perspective like well i'm bearing witness it's like are you or are you just recording this for (laughs) whatever attempt at internet relevancy yeah and so i think it is something that becomes further complicated and maybe a little bit more superficial in terms of what can i gain from stepping back and transferring the responsibility to the camera 
rather than assuming responsibility myself for whatever is happening. It is very messy. Well, I'll say the one time I was in a situation approaching that and took out my phone, my conscious thought was, I'm going to film this to deter something from happening. I, w- I witnessed in my old neighborhood, like a, the quietest, uh, nicest part of Chicago, like a, a racist road rage incident where a guy got out of his car and started yelling racial epithets. And I made a point of getting my phone out in the hopes that it would deter things. Um, I don't know if it had that effect at all. My daughter, who idolizes me, obviously, uh, so it says it did because st- he stopped at that point. But I don't know if it's always, you know, maybe I'm just trying to t- make myself feel better, but I don't think it's always uh, for, I know, I know I wasn't thinking about going viral or anything at that point. Yeah, that's an interesting insight. It's not a, a place I've ever been in. I mean, I've witnessed things like that. My first instinct is not to pull out my camera, but I understand all the reasons people would, particularly when it involves, involves the police. There's yeah. a feeling of this has to be documented or, you know, particularly when it involves violence, like the Bed Bath and Beyond thing. Like nobody was going to get killed at a Bed Bath and Beyond uh, at hair pulling contest. But I think there is sort of a, a sense of, well, somebody has to record this for later. And I kind of wonder to what degree a Jeff in Rear Window is is feeling like it always surprises me rewatching this movie that he just doesn't start taking pictures. You know, as he as his suspicions mount, he, he gets out bigger and bigger telephoto lenses, but they're always just so he can watch, not so he can document. He's not attempting to build a photographic case. And I think that's just really interesting given who he is, what his skills are, what his history is, what his predilections are. But I think that comes back to the journalism thing, though, right? I mean, I don't think that he considers himself like an investigator. I think he thinks, well, I will document this, but his own personal feelings getting involved sort of take it into a different place. So his his responsibility to his journalistic career prevents him from taking photos because that would be crossing a line? I think so. I mean, that's the only charitable read I feel, I feel like I can give it. And, you know, at least to go back to to go back to Miss Torso, at least he's not taking pictures of Miss Torso. I mean, I'm grateful for that. <laughs> this just makes me ask, are we bending over a little a little too far backwards to be charitable to him? Does he deserve the charity? I mean, we love him because he's Jimmy Stewart. But do we think Hitchcock does? And do we think Hitchcock wants us to look at him in such a charitable light? I mean, I, I don't know. I mean, I think that there there are foibles, I guess, that we might find identifiable in, in him. And that Hitchcock certainly would in terms of that instinct, the voyeuristic instinct, that the interest in watching and, and the interest in the movies that are playing out in front of him. We may not find him sympathetic, but we certainly recognize the impulse that Hitchcock is, is exploring here. I think also um, if you cast someone as likable as, as Jimmy Stewart, you can have them do all kinds of perverse things and still make them likable. It's kind of like casting Kyle McLaughlin in Blue Velvet. He's like this fresh-faced, uh, completely likable young man who, you know, perhaps isn't, is, doesn't always have the best uh, impulse control sometimes. Yeah, I mean, his behavior in Vertigo is nuts. <laughs> I, mean, he's just, I mean, like, I mean, this is so, you know, it's, you know, Jeff is just completely anodyne here compared to the way Jimmy Stewart acts in Vertigo. And, and, and you know, and I'm reminded too, Again, uh, to circle back to the point that Tasha was kind of, kind of at least questioning a little bit earlier, it's like I'm reminded uh, here uh, in terms of Jeff's relationship to Lisa when she's in his presence in the apartment versus when she is actually actively involved in this scenario. I'm reminded so much of Jimmy Stewart's feelings about Midge, who is just the most boring person on earth to him and who is totally available to him, right? Which makes her even more boring. And then, you know, somebody like Kim Novak, or you know, like who becomes this figure of intense interest in mystery and eroticism. And, and, and I think it all that transformation, that, that, that switch in perspective is important to both films and important to understanding, you know, the impulses and, and the feelings of Jimmy Stewart's characters in, in, in both movies. I think there's a lot of interesting qualities going on in the difference between how he describes Lisa to uh, his his insurance nurse, Stella, played by Thelma Ritter, versus what he's like with her in person. I find it really interesting at the degree to which like he's, he seems to enjoy her company. 
He seems to authentically like her, but he he won't commit in terms of marrying her. But he also seems like he won't commit in terms of, of showing that he likes her. When she comes over with her little overnight bag and she's like, we're going to have sex for the first time. I've decided this. He doesn't show any kind of enthusiasm. Like, it's almost like he's afraid to indicate how he feels even about this. And he kind of like, you know, looks at the negligee she's brought in a, a very calm, appreciative sort of way. But he makes jokes that seem very off-putting, that seem very uh, intent on pushing her away about how dare she invite herself over. And there's just sort of that element of, okay, but does he like her? Does he want people to know? Does he want her to know that he likes her? <laughs> I just, I love what she, she is holding up the lingerie and he's like, oh, okay, cool. <laughs> Thanks for showing me. <laughs> like it is so I don't want to say yeah. it's cold, but it almost seems bemused. And I think it's just that that sort of strange combination of she clearly likes you, dude. Like what is the problem? And also just in terms of yes, when he's describing her yeah. to the insurance nurse who, you know, is also great in her own way. And I do like that she essentially is like, you're acting ridiculous. Like, we've all seen her. She's gorgeous. She loves you. Like, what's the problem? Um, and I, I do sort of like that that is sort of a tension that you never really understand from his point. But then to go back to it, I don't think, though, that he, like, is scoping out Miss Torso as a replacement. It just seems like he is sort of incapable of affection in any way which sort of makes i think his obsessive desire to figure out you know like did somebody go ahead and kill their wife i think that does make it more interesting i also wonder and this is like a very far reach you know if it is something that he thinks like could i be capable of doing something like that to somebody that maybe i once loved and I think that's far. I don't think the movie actually like suggests that in any way. But I just think there's something interesting about how he keeps her at a remove that I always sort of puzzle over. Well, I think also you're onto something in that the the Thorvald's marriage reflects like the worst case scenario of settling down and getting married, and that's that's very much something that, that's on his mind when he does that. But also like you know, Miss Torso is interesting and unavailable and, and distant and unattainable. I mean, I mean, Grace Kelly is in some ways the quintessential Hitchcock blonde, but here she's she's almost like you know Scott like Scott says she's she's the mid role, not the Kim Novak role. She's the one, she's the one he can have, and yet and thus becomes uninteresting and, and undesirable. Uh, it's it's weird, and if it weren't James Stewart playing this character, once again, we'd really be quite more openly questioning what, what's wrong with this guy. I just have to push back again on uninteresting and undesirable. Like, do you do you really think that he doesn't have uh, a sexual interest in her? I, I feel like we might be going back to the cowardice place again. I think it's easier to have a sexual interest in someone when there's, you know, it, it's less risky to have a sexual interest in someone when there's, when you can just fantasize about it and not when it's not reality. I think it's a little too Freudian Marie, but Ebert's review talks about how the, uh, how the cast is a, a, a symbol of this fear of impotence, but you know, maybe there's something there. I got to say, regardless of anybody's impotence, it blows my mind that she decides the time for them to have sex is three four days before he gets his like leg and hip cast off i don't even know how they're going to begin to manage that <laughs> yeah that's just the mechanics of it are, are pretty challenging <laughs> pretty pretty challenging and pretty questionable and and we know at the very beginning of the story he's only got a week left in the cast we see several days pass like give it two days lady like then you're not going to be trying to have sex around a cast she's like i waited i brought lobster and champagne <laughs> getting it <laughs> yeah, I mean, I do love that in some ways she does sort of take the more typical male pursuer role. And I love that she's like, we're doing it. I invited myself over. <laughs> Not taking no. Yeah. Tonight's the night. I do night. love that there is sort of that subversion <laughs> there to contrast with this very typical nagging wife character who gets murdered and then dismembered. So I do sort of love that contrast. But I also just I don't want to say I don't I don't really understand what she sees in him but sometimes I do sometimes I do wonder what the appeal of him is for her. 
I do think, to be fair, we're not seeing him at his best. I, I think those those <laughs> photographs that we're seeing hint at a lifestyle that's much more danger seeking and daring and brave and and wild and weird. Yeah. And his description of the life that he leads, like it may be tempting to her because it's so outside her experience. And it's again, I feel kind of telling that she's drawn to something that's so far outside her experience, whereas he's afraid and repulsed by something that's outside his experience. Mm-hmm. He's afraid of not living up to her people. She's reading beyond the the far Himalayas in an attempt to uh, figure out what his life is. And I think she's better at reading people. I mean, I feel like she has the more insightful takes in terms of watching the other apartments. Um, and I keep mentioning Miss Torso because she's my absolute favorite. <laughs> <laughs> and I just am fascinated by her life and this idea of like, let me try out all these men and just, you know, sort of see what happens. Why not? Um, but I love that she is the one to tell, like, you're not looking hard enough to understand what she's doing in her apartment with all of these men. She doesn't love them. Like, I love that she has the emotional read um that he does not despite this being his job um so i do like that there is sort of this indication of yes she's high society she's hoity-toity she's bougie um but she also has a strong grasp of people that maybe he's lost over time so are you saying that he's she is an uptown girl living in an uptown world is this, this is what, is what we're I, I think i am here? saying that yes is grace kelly yes. the secret hero of this movie is grace kelly the, oh, the actual hero protagonist of this movie and jeff is just sort of an accoutrement well i mean she's definitely the most more active i mean obviously he has some some limitations <laughs> on that front but but she's even she goes even beyond the plan that they dream up together to get to the bottom of this that flash bulb thing is so cool, though. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. What a great, what a great climax. Specifically, the effect. And, and I, I just, I do nifty. love that. I do love the just the visceral feeling of of helplessness that he's dealing with, just as a suspense device is so effective. And of course, you know, again, you know, the film is so full of this like moments that other films have stolen. So that moment, that climactic sequence is like, oh, that was No Country for Old Men just like took that one wholesale. That that was pretty awesome. Anyway, that's a ramble. But I think it's interesting to kind of think about the other people in this multiplex of a courtyard that he's looking out on. <laughs> right. I mean, Miss Torso is there and Miss Lonely Hearts and, you know, the couple that sleeps on the, on the uh, balcony and the, 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 the dog that gets lowered down <laughs> <laughs> in the from the basket which i i love I, my dog would immediately fly out and <laughs> die but oh, no. uh, but uh yeah it's a it's a pug uh, there it's heavy and heavy and graceless they would it would just you know there's no no good uh no chance anyway um and uh and, and, and you know, I guess that, that, that there's also that what newlywed couple right that just kind of you see crossing the sh- threshold and then and then it's sort of oops they're in a marriage now <laughs> And things are fraught. Uh, I love it. I mean, I, I, you know, I love that he's kind of peering in on that, on these different worlds. I, I, I like the idea of this complex as an organism uh, full of different kinds of life, and uh, again, stories that we can all, as moviegoers, you know, appreciate are unfolding in, in in miniature. You know, in whatever window you peer into, and, and not only that, we crucially don't get all the information that we need. I mean, that's, that's the other thing too, is that, is that we don't know, you know, that someone has been murdered certainly or how there are spaces that we can't see. There are windows that are closed to us where we can't see beyond the blinds. There are uh, spaces between windows where action is occurring that we do not see that is, uh, that is off screen. There are screams that are disconnected from the person who is screaming. And it's just, I mean, it's just great just as a movie don't see Hitchcock break down how cinema itself operates. Yeah. My question, I have a a question I was going to ask was, was which of these would you most like to see the movie of which of these, these, uh, these apartment storylines would be most curious to seeing uh, in a full. Unquestionably the songwriter that, that one wasn't on Scott's list as he was kind of running down some of these stories, but I feel like the contrast between his 
lonely, drunken battles with creativity and uh, like obviously moments of loneliness and self-hating combined with throwing these immense parties and, you know, bringing people home almost every night, but then sometimes just absolutely packing the place with vibrant, young, artistic people. I think that there's a rich, complicated life going on there. Whereas with the newlyweds, what we're getting is kind of a a recurring joke that just keeps getting funnier the longer it runs. Uh, What we're getting with Miss Lonely Hearts is a a developing and escalating story that's still kind of uh, the, the same note hit over and over. With the songwriter, what we have is just the evidence of the complexity of a life that we wouldn't know anything about if we weren't being voyeurs. You know, there are very clearly people who see him in the part of his life that's about uh, popularity and good times. And then nobody seeing him except our peeping Tom during the the downtimes. And the complexity of that fascinates me. You know, having that little window into his secret life and the parts of him that nobody else knows. And then, of course, the fact that Jeff doesn't do anything about it is just is fascinating to me. Hey, Tasha, do you know who plays the songwriter? Who does play? I, yeah, I checked the name and I've already forgotten it. Who plays the songwriter? Does the name Ross Bagdasarian mean anything to you? Oh, God. He's the uh, the chipmunk guy, isn't he? <laughs> the creator of the chipmunks. <laughs> and I believe also uh, uh, my friend, the witch doctor, that song as well. So, yes, he is a songwriter mm. in real life, just perhaps not of the, the swooning romantic music that we know him from this film. Mm. Wow. Incredible. I agree with Tasha. Uh, the entire songwriter storyline makes me want to rewatch Mad Men. Mm. Um, but I also, I do really have this fondness for Miss Torso, and I'm not sure why, but I think I just have this fondness for her because I like the idea of, it sort of feels like Jeff is trying out different lives and sort of feel like she is doing the same thing with all these different men and this idea of what could be my life with this guy versus this guy versus this guy and it doesn't feel malevolent to me so much as it just feels curious and so i feel like that could be you know its own romantic series (laughs) her trying to figure stuff out and then at the very end you know when she does have a partner who comes home and that does sort of complicate and give sort of a bittersweet melancholy element to what she was doing i like that storyline in terms of something again that seems sort of frivolous and like fun and sexual but in reality there's something more sad i mean that's very simplistic but something more sad happening at its core which usually appeals to me i get a little bit of a a penelope charge out of her the sort of sense that her her real love is away and she's entertaining all of these suitors but not actually entertaining any of them seriously Mm -hmm. she's just sort of keeping them on the hook in order to keep them off the hook while she waits for her her true love to come home which you know he's he's clearly in the military he may or may not come home but i think like low-key one of the best little gags in the movie is the fact that almost every time we see her when she's not around men she's eating that's just kind of a running gag as she's stuffing bread and butter or uh, or chicken on a stick or whatever yes. into her mouth. And all of these men share alcohol with her and and try to get get to her body. But when the man she loves comes home, instead of let's go to bed, let's let's put on pull down the shades and imitate the honeymooners. It's what's in the icebox? Let's eat. <laughs> it's like what intimacy is. Right. I mean, there very much is this sense of like, okay, like, yes, we can like have sex or whatever. But like, did you think of me when you went shopping? Like, did you prepare my favorite (laughs) foods for me? Like all that sort of stuff that really feels like a a life together. I really like about those final moments. And yeah, I mean, she stretches a lot. So she really needs the bread. I understand that deeply. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's also just sort of fun that... In another kind of movie are the heavyset busybody that gives Thorwald uh, grief over overwatering his flowers. Like in another movie, and I'm kind of thinking of the producers here and like the concierge woman, uh, she'd just be a one note gag. She's she's just kind of a, a like a loud type that's got her nose and everything. But here she's a sculptor. She spends her days doing like complex abstract clay stuff. And she also spends her days uh, trying to get a tan in a, a fairly revealing uh, bathing outfit uh, for a woman with a body like that 
in I was going to say in that time, but I'll say in any time. Any time, yeah. She is such a small character, and yet she's got like three more facets than your average bit player in a, a stereotype role would normally have in a film like this. And I, I love it for her. Yeah, she's my pick, actually. I, I, what's her story? Where, where's, this, where's, where's the sculpting impulse come from? Does, does she actually, it's her full-time job? Like, you know, what? I want to I know more. Also, I, I like the sculpture. I, I, I put that in my house. Hunger. Hunger. <laughs> You get a lot on uh, was... it would sell for a lot because it was in the movie Rear Window. <laughs> that's that's true. <laughs> I'm sure that's her exact goal in sculpting it. <laughs> <laughs> Scott, what's yours? M- uh, me? Yeah. Oh, I don't know. I, I, I probably missed Torso as well. <laughs> I can't really add to whatever everyone else has said about that, but I do find that the little twist at the end, the person that she ends up with or that who has been with her the whole time, we don't know. I guess surprising i guess i mean he 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 is uh not the adonis of a human being you might expect <laughs> he's very he is, he is shorter than she is and you he, know he's, he's very... an eddie bracken tw- type right exactly so uh what's all that about what's the chemistry like there all that all that is, is compelling but i don't know it's toss-up i mean i think there's a lot of there's a lot of lives that we get pieces of that we want to see more of and that that's that's a tribute to uh, what hitchcock accomplishes here well, I, I think it's a film that offers many chances to ask, what's that all about? And I, I don't think we've gotten to the bottom of any of them, but I've really enjoyed uh, this discussion. So we're going to wind things down now. And when we return, we'll address some feedback. Now it's time for feedback, where we answer any questions and respond to any comments about our episodes or anything else in the world of film. A listener had some thoughts about our recent episode about Big Trouble in Little China. Scott, can you share that? Sure. Paul in Austin writes, love the conversation about the movie and hope you get a chance to hear from Chinese-American critics or reviewers who caught this film on first release. I personally love this movie. And while there are some elements that might be construed as stereotyping, they're also used by Chinese filmmakers in that era who are making martial arts movies. Something a non-Chinese person may not recognize is that Gracie Law sounds like a Chinese-American name. I would like to think that that was a small joke in the rewrite that took the story out of being a Western. The one movie detail I would change is Miao Yin's origins. I think it would have subverted expectations even more if they made her from New York or maybe Toledo. <laughs> ah, that's my hometown. Uh, so Miao Yin's origins line up with Susie Pai's history. In a version of the movie where Wang and Miao Yin get to talk about how they met, we could have had a classic American love story being told by people who aren't white. Roxana, what's your take on Big Trouble in Little China? Have you have you seen it recently? Not recently. <laughs> I could okay. I could not speak to this. But I do think it is sort of I think another facet of reassessing films from the past or whatever is getting a greater, wider array of people's takes. And certainly like growing up as an Iranian American and like not seeing people who looked like me in movies, there are certainly movies that I can look back now and think like, okay, like that was problematic or whatever, but like you still love it and have affection for it. Um, and things that might be, might seem a little bit racist. You might have some fondness toward Mm. just because it's all you had. So I don't want to assume that that is what this person is saying with this letter. But for me, the example is always Aladdin. Like Aladdin is incredibly Orientalist. Like it is 100% just a bunch of conflations about the Middle East. But hey, man, it's all I had as a kid looking for a movie that remotely (laughs) felt familiar to something. So I think you take what you can get. As a critic these days, are you are you up on Iranian cinema? Like, is that is that something that's been interesting to explore? Yeah, it's something that uh, I got into more in college, just because we didn't watch a lot of Iranian movies growing up, just because they are incredibly depressing. <laughs> and and uh, parents were really into like big classics, so like we watched a lot of David Lean, and we watched Hitchcock, and we watched that kind of stuff. But then in college, I uh, took a Persian literature and film class and started getting more into it then and like iran does have a very interesting cinematic culture and in that everybody is pretty much trying to play within government restrictions and tell stories about domestic life that are still honest while also 
allowed to be made or not. I mean, you certainly have a lot of directors who are arrested or who leave because they're not allowed to make the films they want to make. So yeah, I do champion Iranian cinema. Um, there was a movie that came out recently called There Is No Evil, uh, which is really beautiful and compelling about the death penalty in Iran. So yeah, I would encourage anybody to uh, have your heart ripped out and watch some Iranian movies. <laughs> Yeah, I the the part of this letter that I think I I engage with more and off a lot of it is just stuff that I feel like we can't speak to personally as, you know, a bunch of white critics. But the the part that really kind of makes me set up is well there are jokes in this that you're just not getting cuz you're not familiar with the, uh, you know, the the Chinese cinema of the time, like the the state of the art at the at the time. And I'm wondering if that's ever happened for you where you see white critics like ragging on some aspect of like a culture that you know more about and you're like well you know if you if you knew more about the culture or if you knew more about the history or if you knew more about like the the people who are in this movie or the people that made this movie I, i'm just wondering if that's happened to you as a critic i don't necessarily know about ragging on it but i do think that there are things sometimes just that if you don't know the culture that you miss and that are little clues there is no evil is actually a good example of that because the first story relies on a little bit of a reveal at the end that I think very much through critics who were not familiar with the little things that the segment builds in like a clue to who the protagonist is going to be is that he has to collect his government salary at a government owned bank. And there is a specific subset of professional jobs in Iran where you collect your salary that way. So I think if you knew that as an Iranian viewer, it would sort of narrow down for you what this story was about and what this person does as their job. But I think for people who aren't aware of that little tidbit, the end hits a lot harder and it is still effective, but it is one of those moments where you're sort of like, okay, this was a surprise, but not like the big surprise that everybody was making it out to be. And it is just a little bit of cultural context and elements of things that people might not be aware of. But I don't think I've seen a lot of ragging on stuff, honestly, just because I don't think that Middle Eastern or Iranian characters ever played like jokey relief characters that could be offensive in that way. I think, unfortunately, like our Western cinematic tradition for these characters is just that we're terrorists and that's not very funny. <laughs> so, uh, so I think there's not a lot that gets missed in that way past just a general incorrect perception. Yeah, that's pretty fascinating. It's, it's weird the degree to which cultural critics are sort of expected to be experts in everything and nobody's yes. an expert in everything, particularly other people's backgrounds and histories and countries and culture. And, uh, you know, so it's, it's just really interesting to know about like something that small that's a detail. I absolutely guarantee you that I would not have gotten that detail if I'd watched that movie. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's also just one of those things where it's like, uh, speaking for myself, I'm certainly not an expert either, right? I mean, all of us have our own cultural blind spots or things that we don't know. And I think just for me, it's a sense of, you know, invite as wide an array of people as possible to judge anything. I mean, Scott knows this. Uh, the movie that I've wanted to write about for years is Killing Them Softly, which is just about, you know, white assassins <laughs> in uh, Obama's America. And so that is very much something that is does not speak to my cultural background, but I think is just, you know, sort of the point of like, diversify your voices and everybody will have a different take that you might not expect. Now, okay, so speaking of references you might not get, is, is this a piece that you're doing or have done for Oscilloscope's Musings, or is there some other reason that Scott particularly would know about this? Uh, yes, I did it for Musings. Go to musings.oscilloscope.com. It's over 5,000 words on Killing Them Softly. It is an incredible piece. Absolutely great. It's one of the things, one of the things I, I get to do with Musings is tell uh, authors whose work I admire that they 
can write about what they want <laughs> because it, it, you know it, it doesn't have to be pegged to anything what is this what is what corner of cinema do you wish to illuminate and uh and uh i'll pay you a modest fee to to go at whatever length you need to go to uh write about that thing and uh and uh, roxana de- delivered way b- beyond any reasonable expectation uh i think that piece is incredible so you can find that on musings i just want to quickly circle back to this piece of feedback though and i think this is something that we touched on on the episode itself it, big trouble in little china is flawed almost inevitably flawed in terms of its uh, understanding of chinese culture However, an effort has been made, a very strong effort to make these characters complex, to honor the tradition of martial arts cinema. Uh, There is a a thoughtfulness and an intent and a sense of complexity and, and of course, fun that is built into that movie. And um, I think it merits appreciation. Absolutely. Well, it was a a nice piece of feedback and a great discussion just now. And and I am really struck by what you said about oscilloscope even though you will not run my ranking of police academy films Scott, whatever uh, we I, I, appreciate that, I, I appreciate some passions but not all <laughs> so uh we always appreciate when our listeners share their thoughts and their recommendations if you feel so inclined we can feature your response on a future episode to reach us you can leave a short voicemail at 773-234-9730 or email us at comments at nextpictureshow.net And that's it for this episode of The Next Picture Show. In our next episode, we'll look at The Woman in the Window, another film about murder and voyeurism in New York. Look for that episode next Tuesday, or you can subscribe to The Next Picture Show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your podcatcher of choice. If you want to hear it without ads and while surrounded by extra Next Picture Show written and recorded content, come support us at Patreon at patreon.com slash nextpictureshow. Find us at nextpictureshow.net and follow us on Twitter at at nextpicturepod so you'll always know when a new episode drops. Until then, please do not lower your pets into the courtyard by a basket. They're ruining my garden. My windows look into your living room I spend the afternoon on top of you I wonder what it is that I did to make